both Thelma and I uh, have been implementing restorative practices in various different contexts um, for a number of years. Um, but we're also certified to train on restorative practices through an organization called the International Institute for Restorative Practices. Um, this is an organization I've only been familiar with for about two years. And uh, they're a global organization. They offer trainings, certificate programs. They have books, which we'll talk about a little bit later as well. Um, but if you go to IIRP.edu, um, there's a lot of resources there. Um, so if anything we talk about today sort of works um, curiosity for you, that's probably a really great go-to place. Um, we also have been asked to tell you that sort of go through a certification program. They're like, hey, you can teach people about this, but you have to show them this slide. So that's supposed to be the but, so that's the IIRP.edu slide. So, um, so uh, without making any uh, assumptions about familiarity that some of us might have with restorative practices, um, this, this is sort of an intro conversation and experience. Um, so we're just going to start with the fundamental hypothesis as IIRP defines it. And this is on your handout as well. So the fundamental hypothesis of restorative practices is that human beings are happier more cooperative and productive, and more likely to make positive changes in their behavior when those in positions of authority do things with them rather than to them or for them. I mean, that last part again is it's so simple, it's silly, but it's also really profound. Um, they're more likely to make positive changes in their behavior when those in positions of authority do things with them rather than to them or for them. So restorative practices are an evidence-based approach to building community and repairing harm um, when harm occurs in a community. It's been used for decades in the criminal justice system, um, and more recently it's been being integrated in public schools throughout the country and some private schools as well. Um, just under two years ago in the state of Michigan, Governor Snyder signed a bill um, uh, that, that passed through the state house that uh, required all public schools to begin considering restorative practices as an alternative to zero tolerance policies, which of course sent a bunch of type A educators into offensive because it was like, what does the word consider mean, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, the state was saying, we now have enough data to show that zero tolerance policies um, rarely change behavior and don't tend to lead to transformative opportunities for young people, so we need to begin exploring something else. Uh, but, like most evidence-based um, practices, uh, the practice was happening before the theory. So even before we had the data, as some, some sort of pointed to at the beginning, um, restorative practices were being practiced in tribal and indigenous cultures for centuries, if not thousands of years. Um, and I would also say that uh, if there were a group of people that had already been practicing this in some way, um, or at least was like primed to be proactive about restorative practices, it would be Christians, followers of Jesus. Um, this word with, if we had more time, I would uh, probably to the point of, of, of boring us all, make a case that the word with might be the more, most important word in the Bible. Um, maybe, the, maybe the summary word in the Gospel. Um, so this idea of, of authority entering into with rather than interacting um, with people as two or four um, in my opinion, is central to the Christian message. Um, but regardless of if you're new to restorative practices, um, or even how you might articulate the gospel, if you're like, oh, whatever, they I don't know about your word with the Bible thing, um, IIRP likes to say um, that we're all on a restorative journey, which I would affirm. Um, so we can always learn more. There's always more steps for us to take. So we'd like to take just a moment.
some circles and some circles. Um, and then we're going to close our circle back up for a moment uh, and just share who that person was. I would say that there have been a lot of influential people in my life, but probably the most influential is my dad. Um, his name is Roger 
things that he saw in me, like, you know, I think usually you could be an attorney or you could be an, a minister. And that meant a lot to me as a female and a young female because at the time my church didn't allow female pastors. So to have my father say, this is something that you could do, um, made me think more of what he saw in me and then see more in myself. And probably the biggest thing is my dad has a great sense of humor and so helped me see that even in the tough times in teaching or parenting, like there's still so much to laugh about and so and, and to see people with dignity. So dignity and humor and my role as a female in the world are all things my dad helped influence. start just by drawing, uh, and I was never really great at math, would this be like a quadrant? Like this part of two axes right here? I don't know if that's true. Um, so uh, two arrows, um, horizontal and vertical, and alongside of the uh, vertical arrow, let's write um, control, or uh, let's write expectations. And along the bottom, um, we will write support. So for this exercise, um, higher we go vertically, higher level of control. Further to the right we go, um, higher level of support. So, um, and then if you want to just sort of make this into what looks like a little bit of a window pane as well. You see your eyes when you're done with your artistic creation here. Got a few overachievers in this group, it's good. Okay, so when we think about the window of social discipline, um, when we think about environments that are low in control and environments that are low in support or relationships that offer little control or offer little support, we would call these neglectful. Neglectful environments or relationships. And the big word that you can put in this quadrant is not. Top left. Environments and relationships that are high in control or expectations, but offer very little support, um, are environments or relationships that we would refer to as being more punitive. 
and this would be where that word in the hypothesis comes back to. Keep going, bottom right. Environments or relationships that offer very little control or expectations, but very high levels of support are environments or relationships that we might refer to as being permissive. And the big word there is for. And then top right, um, you may have guessed it, save the best for last. So environments and relationships that are high in control and expectations, but also offer high levels of support are environments and relationships that we would refer to as restorative. And the key word there, the big word there is with. Now, um, social discipline window is fundamental to understanding restorative practices. You can't get restorative practices if you don't get this. Again, it's one of those things where it's like so simple um, that it's like duh, but also like the more you play with it, the more profound it becomes because you can actually begin to place every relationship, every interaction, every environment in your life somewhere in this window and begin to measure interactions with students, parents, colleagues, partners, um, in the workplace, whatever, as, oh, that's actually a really punitive environment or relationship. That's actually a very permissive environment or relationship. Oh, wow, very few relationships or environments in my life are more restorative. Or, wow, this is um, more neglectful than I may have guessed. A couple of things uh, that I think are really important um, when it comes to this is that if we want to live in a restorative environment, help cultivate restorative environments and restorative relationships, this pushes us to recognize that when it comes to behavior or conflict or any sort of bump in the road, because we're, we're seeking to create and live in a with culture, that a behavior problem, let's say, because we all work with students, a behavior problem isn't an individual who has violated a rule or a policy. A behavior problem is a person who exists in connection to other people in a community, in an ecosystem, who has caused harm, maybe to themselves or to others. And because we are a with community, then we seek to restore those relationships and repair the harm that has been done. Any action, any relationship, any environment can sort of be analyzed through this window. A couple of maybe sort of uh, easy examples. Where would no tolerance policies fall in the social discipline window? Not to, with, or for. To. Okay. Where would like um, helicopter parents or drone parents? That's the 21st century version. I'm trying to get that get some traction with that phrase. Drone parenting. Um, where would drone parenting be? To, with, or for? Okay. Couple of fours. Couple of twos. Maybe it depends on the sort of control that parents are exercising, or um, what seems like a high level of support because parents are doing everything, but it's actually, um, they're not giving any control or expectations or accountability. They're just doing everything for their young person. Um, how about, uh, your? Ch you don't need to answer this one out loud. <laughs> um, church, traditions, school culture, understanding of God. Uh, where might you place that on here? I mean, if you want to share it loud, you can. Uh, but... Environments with a very punitive view of God um, tend to be very punitive environments. Um, churches, schools uh, that have very permissive views of God 
tend to have very permissive environments. Um, so there's all sorts of ways that you can play with this and try and make sense of the environment that you're in and to begin to think about, okay, if we want to become a restorative school, have restorative environments, restorative relationships, how do we begin to move out of some of these two now or four quadrants and into the with quadrant? Um, for me, some questions that are super interesting just personally when I think about this is uh, when I'm feeling stressful or stressed out, <laughs> where do I go on here? Anybody want to share? Two? So when you get stressed out, you become punitive in home, classroom, everywhere? Maybe at home. At yeah. home. Okay. Um, when you're feeling sympathy, where might you go on here? For? Yeah. There's not like a right answer to these, by the way. So like, um, um, when you're not feeling heard, where might we move on here? When you're about to leave for vacation. <laughs> that's me, like right there. <laughs> um, what about when you come back from vacation? Couple items to know about this. Um, yeah, I think I already said it, but I'll say it again. Um, this is the cornerstone of restorative practices. Um, can't get restorative practices, can't get circles, can't get discipline if we don't get this and begin to use this as a framework for how we view individuals, relationships, and environments. Um, this is not a new idea. Um, Thama already sort of invited us into experiencing this because I even heard it in some of the examples that we were sharing. Um, a lot of the people that we talked about were people who lived in this quadrant with us. He played basketball with us. Um, maybe some of the other passages, because they just seemed above and older. I don't want to project onto your story too much. Um, these older, wiser men who were so much taller than me, they were probably in the two category. Um, than the with category. Um, but what's also true is that we're all not naturally restorative people um, because we go on vacation sometimes and we get stressed out sometimes and we might move all over the place on here. Um, so what this means is this can become a tool to help us be intentional about every interaction, every relationship, and every environment and can reveal some of our blind spots, um, our shadows, um, our triggers uh, that are impacting negatively the way we interact with our colleagues and with our students as well. And then uh, one thing that's really important to mention here is that uh, a very pointed, often heard critique about restorative practices is that um, because we live in the with quadrant, we don't take control of our expectations seriously. And I just want to challenge and remind you, this is living as, as high on the control and expectation quadrant as two. It's not a removal of control and expectations. It's also just taking support very, very seriously. For me, this has become a really crucial tool in putting the gospel into practice in very practical ways in my interactions with young people and with my colleagues. Sure. <laughs> you know I could go on for a host. So as we practice this in various environments, particularly today as we look at the lenses, um, there's a continuum for restorative practices, and um, we have restorative practices that are proactive, where we're doing something um, just to build community, and then there's um, restorative practices that are responsive, which means something's happened, harm's been done, and we need to respect that.
important thing to remember on the restorative practices continuum is that you want about 80% of your practices to be in that proactive phase, and only about probably 20% of your practices to be in that responsive or reactive space. Um, and I think that makes sense, right? That we want to build the relationship and build the culture so that when something does happen, we have those things that bind us together and we have that foundation so that the healing process is something that um, is more likely to happen in a positive way. So within our school, we work very hard on just finding as many spaces as possible to do the proactive um, practices so that when we do get to those responsive practices, they go well. The best so in those proactive practices, most often in our setting, um, we are talking about circles. Um, we find that that's the best space to sort of leave everything else behind and really concentrate on building community together. Um, and just to think about the fact that you can use those circles for a variety of things. They're not just for the kind of, kind of circle that we use today. Um, they can be for setting classroom norms or classroom expectations. Um, they can be for building community, um, playing games. And, um, just having delight together as a community, which is important. Sometimes we forget in schools, um, we forget to play sometimes. Um, or they can be for course content to, to wrestle with or to, uh, to really um, dig into that. But they're not brainstorming um, and they're not assessments. So they're different from like if you do Socratic seminars or doing those kinds of things. It would be more about like how you feel um, in relationship um, to the course content or how it can Proactive classrooms can be used, um, like I said, in the classroom setting. So um, you can start them as like a check-in or a check-out circle in the classroom or like homerooms or home bases or those kinds of things. Um, they can be used in small groups. We do that in our, in our setting. We have small, group, um, small groups that meet with ninth and 10th grade, um, same gender groups in our school that meet uh, every other week. And so we use circles quite a bit in our small group setting. But you can use them on sports teams, or theater teams, or music groups. Um, and we use them a lot with our staff. So for instance, our um, Monday morning devotions are always done in circles or in triads. Um, it's a great way for our staff to build community together. Um, and they can be large circles. So sometimes we've done full staff circles where we have 25 or 30 people in a circle. They can be small circles or they can be triads. And we're going to show you a triad at the end of um, our session today. But here's what's amazing to me um, about circles. The more that I practice them with adults and with young people, is that they're one of the only spaces today, especially in 2019, where you can just share and not be judged, or at least that's the way that we intend the circle um, to be, or met with advice, or be redirected, um, or have it be about somebody else. It's just about receiving what's said. How often do we get to be in a space today where we just received what we said, where we just received what others received? And so um, that's going to give just a little story this is nearly an impossible thing for me to do because there's, I think, probably in the past three years, I have not experienced a more transformative practice or environment than circles, just um, proactive circles. Um, one of the first ones that I had, um, or, or most significant ones that I had, was um, at a training that Thelma and I were both at in Evanston, Illinois, with IIRP. There's a group a little bigger than this. There's people from all around the country, um, two-day training, and we started in a circle. And in the, like, get coffee in before you sit down, before we actually got started, I was like, okay, um, 
70-year-old overweight guy from Flint with three master's degrees and kind of talks loud, he's going to bother me. Um, I already know she is a um, transgender African-American um, uh, public school administrator. Um, this person, uh, she is already crocheting and wanted to know if I was Catholic. Um, <laughs> And I just went into judgment. I was like, I don't know any of these people, and I just immediately went into judgment mode. And I, it, it feels vulnerable for me to say what I say because those are some, some harsh judgments. And I'm especially a guy from Flint. I was like, this guy's gonna bug the heck out of me. So I like, no. Um, and uh, then we did our first circle. And I was fighting tears of not only like sort of self conviction, but also just uh, sort of amazement at the beauty that existed in the room what, because I was just able to listen to somebody because I actually gave myself to the process and I heard the story of why Flint Guy was there, of why a San Francisco administrator was there, why this person was already crocheting, <laughs> and um, why she even asked me if I was Catholic. Like, it is just, it, the pieces came together and I was like, wow, these are human beings. Um, it was a profound experience of community that I've actually not experienced in too many. That's what I have to offer. <laughs> and so because um, the interest of time, we could say a lot more, but we're going to um, move towards responsive practices for restorative conferences. Um, and these are um, designed to restore harm. So this is when our, our kiddos have messed up. Um, they have violated school code. They have harmed another, school, uh, another student um, in school. They've taken property. Um, they've been disrespectful to a teacher. So this is some kind of harm that's occurred how are we going to restore um, So this can be done uh, informally versus formally. So a lot of us are used to doing those informal practices, right? Where you just kind of pull a student aside and, and you try to understand where they're coming from and you can redirect their behavior. Um, and you just, you just listen to them and sort of hear what's going on and, and you move forward. Um, but there could also be those um, times where it's really formal, where we would actually do a lot of preparation um, and we would then actually have a restorative conference where both the offender um, and the victim together, and maybe even some other witnesses or people who are involved um, in the event. So there's some different ways um, that you can practice this. In the formal restorative conferences, uh, we have sort of two basic ones that we, that we follow. There are more. Uh, but one is uh, the mutual dispute or harm conference. This is like when kids have a history together. Like they, you know, one's hurt the other, and then the other one's hurt this one, and other people got involved, and there's drama. So the mutual dispute one is that happens a lot in high school end, and maybe I even used to a lot more when I was in middle school than in middle school end. Um, and then the next one is where there is a, this clear uh, offender and victim. So there's those two, those two types um, of formal conferences that we hold um, just often. And so central to um, restorative conferences and the preparation of restorative conferences is to change the language and how we speak to one another um, and how we receive things from one another. Um, and so the, what we try to really do is focus on both our questions and our statements to be affective statements. And if you think about your affects, right, your affects are those nine biological responses that you really don't even have control over the stimuli in your environment. So when researchers look at babies, they see them responding, right? You, you right away see those joy, excitement, disgust, um, anger. Those are the kinds of affects, fear. Right, that we have right from the time that we're born. 
Um, and so often when we practice using effective statements in the proactive setting, right, I feel blank when this happens, right, or how do I feel, or how do I respond, how am I affected by the things and the stimuli um, in the environment. But one of the most important affects when it comes to um, restorative practices is shame. Because if you think about it, um, shame is what causes our students to want to withdraw, to want to avoid, to want to attack themselves, or to want to attack others. It is that shame that pushes them often towards substances, towards self-harm, or towards harming others. There's um, this hypothesis um, by a criminologist called Braithwaite, which basically says that people do well or behave well in the environment when they feel connected, right? When they have those relationships and they feel a part of the community. And if they um, are shamed or they feel like they disconnect from the community, that's when they're going to cause harm. So shame is what causes um, people to disconnect. And so restorative questions and restorative practices are saying that that shame is important in pointing out, hey, I've caused harm, but it can't last to the point by which I want to withdraw from the community or leave them disconnected. So I need to be restored to the community as soon as I possibly can. And so that's why when um, a child has caused harm or violated one of our student codes, we want to be really clear that we are using restorative questions that connect to those affects rather than um, why did you do that, right? What were you thinking? What did you do? Um, so that immediately, of course, causes shame um, to a point where um, the student might actually that they are no longer going to be welcomed. So when things go wrong, what um, I will ask, you know, the young man or young woman that's sitting in my office in front of me, often you know that look, right? They come into the office when I'm the one seeing them, and they're like, you know. Um, and I'll just simply start with the question, what happened? Um, and that was transformative for me when I just started with that, because that question is so different from, Here's what I heard, or here's what you know was reported to me, because that immediately puts them in the defensive. But when you simply say what happened, it still allows that for the moment control to stay with them, and for the moment for them to feel like I am a valued and respected, respected member of this community. So just to say what happened, and have the students still like, this happened, this happened. Then what were you thinking at the time? Again, this was such a transformative question instead of like, why did you do that? Um, and to have the student be able to say, well, that's just my most often response, right? I wasn't thinking at the time, right? Um, because they're still um, trying to grow some impulse control. Um, what have you thought about since? Who's been affected by what you've done and what way? And what do you think you need to do to make this right? So asking those questions, it's like magic. I know this seems super simple, but since I started using these questions with students, they feel more respected by me and they're much more willing to collaborate and cooperate and then for those who've been harmed, what did you think when you realized what happened? Right? So often for our parents, it's like, do they hate me? Like, why did they do this? You know, uh, what impact did this incident have on you and others? What has been the hardest thing to, um, for you? And what do you think needs to be done um, to make things right? So for both the victim and the offender, we ask these sets of questions um, separately. And I have these questions on a little card that it's right there. It's always right there. And you just do that for this presentation. And I don't um, assume that I remember what they are and, and what 
reporter to ask them, and they always think really clearly um, for that script to have them just there when you ask them um, their students. Yeah. So, so those questions are evidence-based questions, like very specific wording um, to connect to the nine affects. And I would say that um, one of the things you could leave with and start doing tonight, <laughs> tomorrow, with students and colleagues um, is those questions. Um, and they fundamentally changed the way I've interacted with young people. Um, but when they said, stick to the exact wording, carry this card with you, I was like, yeah, whatever. And then I realized, like, oh yeah, like, mm, I need that card in my pocket all the time. Use those exact questions just in order. And your repeat offenders, even though I don't love that phrase, they'll actually get used to those questions. Um, and that in itself changes the nature of the relationship with the, the young person that you're working with. Yeah, and I think I have that's really important and I want to say this maybe two times. Um, restorative conferences, so doing these, these formal conferences with the offender, with the victim, with some family members with them or friends with them, um, are not a replacement for, for discipline. So for instance, when we have a bullying, harassment situation, um, we're still going to implement the suspension or detention or whatever it might be, um, but it can impact the consequences, so it might shape it. Um, and a lot of times when the students answer those questions of what do, what, we, what do we do to make this right, they'll come up with some cool stuff sometimes, right? So um, we just had a, like a destruction of property situation. So those students realized, okay, I cost the janitor time, I cost the teacher's time, how can I make it right in terms of doing service for them? So it might actually shape what your um, consequences might look like. So the restoration of the relationship to the janitor and to the teachers are important but also um, that there may be some consequences that fit that. Um, but it doesn't mean that we would never use a detention or a suspension. We might still use those um, when they're appropriate, especially when they involve taking time. They're going to give us some time, because we took some time. Um, and eventually, restorative practices, you do more and more, like every year when we revise our student handbook now, um, we think from a more restorative um, philosophy, and so we continue to transform our policies and our codes and our handbooks um, to reflect those. Um, and I wanted to share just a brief story about um, responsive restorative practices. Uh, Matt actually kind of ran the first lab on this, and then I ran the second lab on this. But he, um, we had an incident in a classroom where things escalated between two young ladies, and it actually resulted in one young lady kicking the other young lady in the stomach. Right? So physical violence, right at the top of our of our handbooks. Um, it's a Matt with the initial interview, use the restorative questions. Well, it comes out in these interviews that this was the top end of sort of a long history of these girls being really, really close friends, you know, things drifting apart, boyfriends getting in the way. I mean, you guys know we work with young people, how this, how this story goes. Um, and so what happened is, of course, there was immediate consequences for physical violence. It's a big deal. Um, but we also really wanted to figure out how do we repair and restore this relationship. Now that might not mean, in this case, friendship, but it does mean being classmates. And how do we continue to be classmates? We're a small school, there's not a lot of places to hide. We've got to learn how to be in community together. But what happened in this case is one girl was ready, the other girl wasn't ready. 
Um, and then a couple weeks later, as tensions continued between them, um, or maybe they turned peers against each other, you can imagine some of these scenarios, right? Um, and the other one's ready, and this one's not ready. And so, long story short, um, a year later, there is still tension between these two young ladies, and mom's calling the office saying, my child's being harassed, my child's both being bullied, the school's not doing anything, which really is just translated into, there was a glare, or a child maybe wasn't included in the conversation, those kinds of things, which maybe isn't harassment or bullying, but certainly doesn't feel good either, right? And so, we invited again, we really believe this restorative conference is what's going to be the answer. When you say that to teenagers, they just don't believe you. <laughs> they think, oh, well, I'm going to sit in the circle and everybody's going to be happy, right? Um, and you say it to parents, like, you know, if there's not a pound of flesh and there's not the punitive part, they worry, right? Is this going to be helpful? But we finally convinced um, these two girls to participate in the restorative conference. One girl brought her dad, one girl brought her mom. Um, and we had this conference just a few weeks ago. And we usually begin the mutual um, dispute conference with the person who was offended the most, or hurt the most. And so we started with the girl who was kicked in the, in the stomach. She told her story. Um, and it was amazing to watch in the circle as the other parent of the other child starts to realize, oh, this is how she felt. And after that incident, she was anxious and when she didn't want to come to school. Um, and then for the other child to say, well, the reason I, I kicked you is because, you know, I am really physical and physical with siblings, and I, I didn't intend it the way that you received it. Um, it just it was just very, very interesting, right, to hear this as we do as we do this restorative conference. And by the end of the conference, and this is the way that it's intended, you have refreshments off to the side. So after we formally finish the conference and we write a little contract up together of how we're going to move forward together. Then we close the circle, and then we invite people to stay if they want to drink. And often then what happens is they wander over to the refreshments, they start to talk, it's good to see the temperature, just really warm up in the room. Um, and it's just, it's really been amazing. So a year after all of this happened, the restorative conference happened, uh, the issues were resolved between these two families, um, and both families have reported to me, even though it's been a few weeks now, that these girls actually are able to work on a project together since um, you know, they're not hanging out on the weekends. Uh, but they're able to be classmates. And we have just so many stories um, like this. It doesn't, always, it doesn't solve everything, um, but we often find that when people get to hear uh, each other's perspective, and we're able to see that, that it can be very transformative. So, um we're going to essentially close this session with practicing another circle together. Um, and what we'd like to do is... Okay, yes, we can do this. Um, let's break up into groups of three. Um, so triads. So make three little mini circles. Or, uh, three circles of three. And we've got a couple extra talking pieces. Um, and uh, we've done this once before. So Thelma and I will not be facilitating any of the triads. Um, I'll invite you to consider the, the five intentions for participating. Speak from the heart. Listen from the heart. Without feeling rushed, just say enough. And respect the talking piece in each other and trust the process. And then, did you have the remote? Just two prompts and do them one at a time. Okay. So what has been the best part of your school year so far? We'll go right into the, the 
the intense. What is your crossroads? Um, remember, you're free to pass if you'd like. Um, say just enough without saying too much. So, and then um, when it seems like all three groups have finished, we'll close our time together. So, three groups of three, if you're willing. circle code here and just say the best prompts are provocative prompts. The best prompts are open-ended prompts. So part of learning how to engage in the circle and invite others into it is to sort of uh, lower our pressure we put on ourselves to like get it right or understand it. Um, it's however you interpret the question.
circle's good? Okay. Where are we at with time? Oh, it's... Yeah, yeah, right. So, um, so we're going to go one minute order. Over. So, um, on your handout are uh, the titles of three books that are published by IIRP. Um, I have a really hard time being like sleazy salesman guy, but like these books are fantastic. Um, and uh, like they're super practical, helpful ideas and also sort of the philosophical framework and research framework. So you can find those on Amazon and the IIRP website. Um, IIRP.edu has more resources and then also uh, me and Thomas' um, contact information is on there as well. Um, whether it's a cup of coffee, some formal or informal consulting, coming and working with your communities, churches, schools, whatever, like um, we can do the two-day certification program with your community, like through the IIRP, um, or we can design something like this. If, if it would be helpful, we would, this is something we wholeheartedly believe in. It's transformed us in our work, um, and we want to spread the news um, and how it fits with the good news. So, all right. so much, we're 